You're listening to another great podcast in the Stoplight Network. Hi, folks, and welcome to Let's Talk Photography, episode 33, the show for June 2016. I'm your host, Bart Bouchotts. Um, this week's or this month's show is evidence that if you send us feedback, you'll end up on the show. Um, so <laughs> Alison Sheridan from the wonderful Nasillacast Mac podcast, the Technology Geek podcast with an ever so slight Macintosh bias, wrote to say that she really enjoyed episode 32, but she had questions. And I hadn't thought up a topic yet for episode 33. So I said, why don't you come on? And ask questions. So I also have Antonio back to uh, receive the questions. So welcome, Alison, and hi, Antonio. This is going to be Bart. fun. Yeah. So instead of just yelling at my uh, iPhone and saying, but wait, wait, I have more questions, <laughs> I get to actually do it, huh? Yes, absolutely. Um, and I mean, I, I, you know, it was, we couldn't possibly do everything in the show we did last month because it was only an hour and a bit long. So you can, even though I could have probably talked for another hour. <laughs> oh, yeah, easily. <laughs> You're only limited by the disc size of the recording, Antonio. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can just with caffeine in me, forget it. I can go for a long time. Well, the risk of swelling your heads up. I did want to say that I really enjoyed uh, episode 32 because of the way you went through each of the adjustments and explained what they are and why you might. Uh, some of them you said why to use one versus another. Uh, and it, it just sort of surfaced these other questions I have of, well, uh, you know, this tool versus this tool. I, I'm sorry, mm. we're not talking like Photoshop versus Affinity Photo or anything like that. But uh, this this uh, type of tool within those image editors, why would I use A versus B? What Because a lot of things sound similar. And you guys yes. touched on some of that, but I had a bunch more that I was like, well, wait a minute. What about this one? Yeah, and like if you're sitting there in Affinity or Lightroom or Aperture or even Photos and you have all of those sliders, you still have to choose. Right. Even for things like, okay, I know that the brightness is wrong, but I have a curves, I have a levels, I have a black point, I have a white point. There's so much to pick from. So you're right, there is still, even within one tool, let alone deciding which tool you'd like to use. Yeah, luckily like these things work very similarly i mean between the different hmm. image editors i'm I'm finding that once i know one i can i can migrate fairly easily to another one because um they sort of follow a standard uh set of terminology uh, close ish yes <laughs> the older the more traditional the the adjustment the further back in history it goes the more they name it exactly the same thing but the more modern adjustments tend to have synonyms so clarity and definition are just you know, two different brand names for the same sort of thing. Right. Also stru structure. Too. So structure is similar. the third brand name. Yeah. For the yeah. same. <laughs> it's for brand all of us old, before. old people. <laughs> really? It is. I think a lot of it is, you know, we still talk about, you know, things in, 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 in the sense of like film too. We relate stuff to film and a lot of people, millennials are growing up now and they haven't, they don't even know what film is, but we still talk about it in that way. So. Well, can I what stuff. you do with your iPhone? You film things. <laughs> I still use a clicker when I change the channel on the TV. Oh no! <laughs> well, how often anyway. do you say "wind down the window" and you're using electric window? Yeah, anyway. everybody. <laughs> well, the floppy disk icon is still safe and probably will be forever, ever, ever. Let's hope so. Yeah. Anyway, do you want to kick us into the first of your follow-up questions, Alison? Sure. So um, we, we sort of briefly talked about it a little bit here. Um, let me see if I get this right. Structure, clarity, and definition. Are those, mm -hmm. three, those three things are used by different tools? Are those are all the same thing? As far as I can work out by sliding <laughs> them, they seem to have the same effect on the photo. There might be a subtle mathematical difference underneath, but they seem to be striving for the same goal. Okay. If, okay. If that I was makes say sense. More or less. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So more if we start as that structure, clarity, and definition are the same thing. That 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 helps. But now, mm -hmm. unsharp mask versus. The, let's pick one of these. Let's call it uh, clarity. Just well, for the sake of argument. You've left another one out, so you've sharpen as well to throw into the. Oh, mix. sorry. Yeah, sharpen, unsharp mask versus. Let's call it just clarity to pick one word to use. So why okay. would I use one versus the other? What do they do? Well, the first thing to say is an unsharp mask is a piece of mathematics that you use for sharpening. 
So you sharpen with an unsharp mask because someone was really asleep at the wheel when they named that. Wait. No, that's not true. Not true? Okay, correct. It's a a legacy thing because at some point in way past when in time, in order for you to sharpen a piece of film, you actually had to create a mask that was less sharp and somehow sandwich it with the film that would then uh, be refilmed and would create a sharper image. Um, Wait, 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 wait. A piece of mask... That's a masking, un, like that's a masking unsharp film that, that's makes fuzzy. it sharp. Yes. Yeah. How does you, that? You blend it with. You blend it with when it was blended with the original piece of film that it came from would help to, and then it was rephotographed. It would help uh, create. Um, it, it would make it more sharp. But the original mask was an unsharp mask. It had to be fuzzy, uh, and then combined with the original piece of film to then create the sharp. How does a fuzzy uh, a sharper mask? Image make something sharper because what you're doing okay so you you take the image and you fuzz it and then you recombine it with the original so anything that's not particularly deep that's not particularly present that's just sort of a little bit there vanishes it gets averaged away by the fuzz but anything that's really there is then brought out i think is how it works something like that and also if you notice if you go way too far uh if you're using software and you go way too far with an unsharp mask you end up creating a halo around the edges and so that's basically what's happening is I think a sh- unsharp mask is creating uh, a slight halo around edges. And in order for us to, to create something to look sharper, we're actually increasing the contrast of edges because that's how we see sharpness. So by perhaps creating this fuzzy edge around edges, um, when combined, would create more contrast on those edges. And thus we would see it as more sharp. So. Okay, so unsharp mask is really is looking at the contrast of edges, right? Well, actually, all sharpening is. Well, don't don't see. (laughs) Stop it! (laughs) (laughs) I I I need something that explains why one is different, so that I'd know when to wait. Okay, try explaining sharpen to me then. Well, do you want to go into before we before we go into that? Can I just make a general thing? It's like think of them like like spices that are. Very similar, especially like in uh, uh, Middle Eastern spices, where a lot of them seem similar. And why would you use them? Each one is going to create some different flavor in your image. So just the, if you start to think of it that way, like one is not okay. better than the other and one is not, you know, it's all going to be how you want to, you know, create the recipe of your image developing. So it, that's a good way to start sort of the big picture part of it. Okay, see, I want to disagree with that. <laughs> Why? Well, the way I look at it is that the, the traditional sharpening is a, is, is a technique that's been around for a very long time. And it can become quite unpleasant quite quickly. If you go a little too far with the sharpener, things get ugly. It, it's a very unpleasant effect when it's even slightly overdone. Whereas these modern clarity and definition, they're, they're sort of slightly cleverer algorithms that don't have that side effect. So it's like they were invented because sharpening was a bit of a blunt tool. And so these are like a nicer version of the, or a more modern version of the old sharpeners, how I look at them, but I could be wrong. Well, that's not necessarily disagreeing with me, you know? Okay. That's, that's, he was just giving the spice definition, (laughs) the spice explanation. Because there are some people, you know, people will say, don't use unsharp mask now. And people swear by unsharp mask. And some people, I mean, sharpen is sort of, uh, Basic sharpening is not really a good, um, you know, uh, feature to use on these programs. We have um, Smart Sharpen, and we have Unsharp Mask, and a whole bunch of other things. We have, uh, uh, what is it? Uh, there's a few other techniques. Um, and each one is going to depend on how you like the image. So it's really a matter of preference. So, so you, well, may, let, part, let, you may say sharpening is good, but some people might actually like that. Let me let me stop you there. So uh, if, if I like curry powder... <laughs> and mm-hmm. you like cinnamon, mm-hmm. then you use cinnamon and I use curry powder. But isn't yep. how how do I know which one I like? I look at all three of these and I move the sliders and I go, they look like they're doing the same thing to me. And I'm sure there's subtle differences I'm missing. Um, well, I guess. Well, I was going to say, you know, they each each spice will um, spice, <laughs> but it is a good way to think about it. They're going to solve certain problems. Or they're gonna they're gonna create a certain flavor in the picture or in your recipe. Um, so it may not be one or the other. It could actually be both. It could be a little bit of this and a little bit of that. 
Yeah, Alison, if you can't tell the difference, if it's not breaking your image or doing something you find unpleasant, then you haven't got a problem to solve. So well, whichever one works, great. But if, if you if you use one and you're saying, okay, it did a really, really nice job on, say, the foreground, but oh my God, the edges of those fluffy clouds have gone all weird now. Then you might back off the one you had done and try one of the other ones to see if you can get the good without the bad. So unless something unless something in the image makes you go ooh, it's fine. Whatever you chose, whatever one you picked is fine. Okay, but one of the things that bothers is harder for someone who's not done this extensively, done image editing a lot, is that you're faced with so many sliders and uh, so many things that you look at, you're like, oh my gosh, even if I just look at sharpen in photos, there's intensity, edges, and fallout, and or fall off, and mm -hmm. I'm just, I'm overwhelmed. So now I've got three things okay. with 72 sliders. Ah, okay. If you're overwhelmed by all the different twiddly bobs on sharpen, just use the, uh, the clarity slash definition slash whatever the other name for it was, because that is a single slider. So that is easy to use. And if that works, then you're finished. You're done. I got to disagree. <laughs> 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 this is where we make the best shows. This is where we disagree. Uh, I dis I disagree that clarity and uh, definition are a way of sharpening the picture. Okay. So they're, what's your definition? To me, there are different these? tools. Well, they're sharpened the picture. I mean, I think the tools are named for what they do. They're not, you know, except for maybe unsharp mask, <laughs> but they're named for what their purpose is. And clarity and definition has nothing to do with sharpening. Okay. So when these, uh, I think it was Lightroom that might have been the first one to actually Lightroom and Photoshop to have something that was called clarity. Basically, people before that were doing these little tweaks in, in order to finally define mid-tone contrast. Now, I said before that sharpening is basically changing the contrast of edges. So in some sense, it is, you know, a sharpening of the picture, but you're really dealing with tonal values. And like generally, if you're looking at a picture and you say, God, I really want more contrast. In other words, you want stronger blacks and stronger whites uh, in the picture, but you don't, maybe you don't want to affect the whites and the blacks of the pictures. You want to affect the tones that are in between. There wasn't really a setting to do that until someone came up with the idea of the clarity or definition. So and you're saying that's it, not using edges? It's doing mid -tone? It's not using edges for, for exactly. It's, it's, it, it is mainly, again, for boosting bits of contrast in places that maybe don't have it. Maybe it's like a, maybe almost like a saturation version of contrast. Uh, but it's these mid-tone areas that were always the hardest to be able to change the contrast in. And so the side, there might be a side effect of it looking sharper uh, yeah, as so an image, but it's not looking, a sharpening if, process. I mean, you if you're might, looking at your you picture, might, right? Well, I was going to say, let me just finish. I was going to okay. say, if you do some clarity or definition to your image, it might end up looking sharper, and therefore you may not need to use a sharpening filter afterwards if that was your goal, um, because the contrast increase might make it look sharper. But by definition, it is not a sharpening filter. In fact, it's not in the sharpen areas. Uh, in fact, if you're looking at Lightroom, it's part of the basic uh, processing. It's not part of the detail processing, which in Lightroom is sharpening and noise reduction. So it's actually a basic, it's a tonal value uh, the device so Antonio, would I, be, would I be correct in saying that if you were to zoom in on an image that you're sharpening what you would see is that fuzzy lines become narrower well so fuzzy if, lines are going to become narrower but also you're going to increase the sharpening of everything in the picture so if there's right, noise okay, in the picture if, you're going to increase that as well okay but imagine we have an edge and we zoom right into it and we mm -hmm. apply a sharpen of some sort an unsharp mask or whatever what we would see is that that Say it's a slightly off, a slightly off black, you know, five pixel wide edge. It would become a blacker three pixel wide edge. It would, it, it would sort of shrink in and darken. Also, the surrounding colors to it will also change in contrast. Right. So, if, which by if the way is causing line, halos when I slide it to the extremes. Too far. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. too well, far. but that's the same thing. So you said it's not doing edges, but I'm getting halos on edges, just like with unsharp masks. Okay, you're now citing the one we're not talking about because we're talking about Sharpen. <laughs> Wait. I was, okay, I was describing what Sharpen is. So Sharpen Oh, we took takes... a turn and I missed it. 
Because the compare okay, so to compare the two, I figure let's zoom right in on one edge, right? Be it okay. the corner of a house, be it the edge of a car's windscreen, we're zoomed right into an edge of some sort, and so it's going to be a not perfectly black, say five pixel wide band that edge. Mm-hmm. And if we apply an unsharp mask or some sort of sharpening algorithm to it, you'll see a few things happen. But one of the things that is very noticeable is that that black five pixel wide band will shrink in a bit. It'll get pulled tighter, sharper. So it might become three or two pixels. It should become darker. And any whites around that should become a little bit lighter. And as and Antonio, you're saying that the colors would also shift a little bit. But a noticeable thing is that sort of shrinking of the edge. It just sort of tightens it in a bit. Whereas if you do a clarity, the edge will stay the same thickness, exactly. but it will become blacker and the stuff around it will become whiter. So it's not changing the thickness of the lines, it's just changing the contrast. So hmm. textures will be more obvious because something that was, say, 50% grey next to 25% grey might become 60% grey next to 15% grey. So the, the texture will come out. And so if you have a hazy scene, what you're really missing is contrast between, say, the sea and the distant mountain. And so the sea will get darker, the distant mountain will get brighter, and the effect will be that the fog appears to vanish because we've added in contrast. Hmm. I'm playing with the clarity slider right now and, and I'm the live clarity slider on Affinity Photo, and, and I think I see what you're saying. I'm noticing, though, I, I happen to have a picture of a fake cow behind a, a fence. A fake cow? <laughs> But it has to do with Dave Hamilton's new album. Uh, it has a song on it called, uh, what is it called? Bovine Abduction. And uh, so I found a fake cow behind a screen. Anyway, so I'm sliding this up and down. So it's a black and white cow. When I when I slide it up and down, the black becomes very black and the white becomes very white when I go yes. to the extremes. Yes. So if you do you have a picture of like something with grass on it? Yeah. Grass some of that will have a bit too. of texture. Mm-hmm. So you should notice that the blades of grass appear to stand out more because the shadows have become darker. Yes. But it's not that anything has become narrower. So if you zoom into 100%, the edges aren't getting sharper. There's just more contrast there. Okay. Okay. That actually so if you do helps. a sharpen, the edges will shrink. Everything will just become a little bit trimmer, all those edges. Pull in a bit tighter. This would be a good time to remind everybody that the images the images are not getting sharper. There is no real... <laughs> sharpening happening there's just contrast adjustments to fool our eyes so if anybody's thinking well i've got this out of focus picture that i can make sharper in photoshop no that's not going to happen you can give the appearance of it looking slightly less out of focus or less blurry but yeah we're not really sharpening anything i mean we, we can't get back the data you didn't capture by having exactly, it out of exactly exactly <laughs> it, it you know sharpening is actually you know a uh, double-edged kind of name here you know, you are doing some sharpening. You are making it look, you know, crisper to your eye. But some people do think, I, I run across this all the time with students. I think, well, I can, you know, that's what, what does a sharpened filter do? It's like, well, it's not going to change your out-of-focus picture. So. <laughs> yeah, it can't, it can't fix that. That's so, not going to happen. Yeah. I think I've kind of got the difference between sharpen and clarity, but between sharpen and unsharp mask, still a complete mystery. Same. Unsharp mask is a way of achieving sharpening. Then why do they have both tools? It's a style. It's a legacy. It's a legacy tool. I mean, if if you live in Photoshop for a long time, they uh, tend to not get rid of uh, functions. They okay. just keep adding functions. So, you know, you go back to, ver- I think my first version of Photoshop I used was version 2. And the only way to, to, to make a picture uh, to increase, you know, apparent sharpening was an unsharp mask filter. Uh, so and they've just left that mask and sharpen in. are the same thing. Uh, I would say sharpen. Well, you know, there's other filters now. There's smart sharpen and uh, a few other things. Now they've they've increased the the um, they've done better technology over the years and figured out better algorithms to uh, deal with the increase in contrast so it appears sharper without okay. damaging the image more. So unsharp mask actually can work for certain subjects. Um, I couldn't say off the top of my head. I mean, depend on I'm sure people who are listening to the show who've used this would know what it's good for. So, like, so let's say unsharp masks might be really not good for landscapes or, or, or people, but it might be good for, you know, something else. Um, and again, some people swear by these old functions. Oh, I've been doing it this way for years. 
now like the newer versions of Photoshop have something like smart sharp and where it would it might take on some of the effects of unsharp mask without some of the uh, the uh, consequences of like halos and unfortunate other artifacts. Okay, so I'm going to start with clarity and work my way towards the other ones. That's what I just decided. <laughs> okay. Well, again, the number I like, so I, remember I, I, the, use, I use that. One. The idea is, what is the goal for the picture? It's not just to move dials back and forth, but it's like, what are you trying to? I mean, you know, I'm trying to look at the big picture here. What are you trying to achieve in your photograph? And that's always the hardest. I think that's the hardest starting point. You look at a picture and say, what's going to improve this? Yeah, well, I'm coming at it from two sides, Antonio, because on on the one hand, I have a photo that there's something I want to achieve. But if I haven't studied these tools separately, I don't know which tool to grab. You know, right, I don't want right. to just grab the curry when I really should have grabbed cinnamon. <laughs> it's a, it, it's, a, I mean, I can, but then I'm just experimenting every time I'm trying to fix a photo and I'm learning. And, and the two converge eventually, I hope. Well, yeah, there's yeah. going to be a certain amount of trial and error, right? There's nothing we can, we can't tell you to always use the cinnamon with an apple or with a pear or with a gooseberry or with. I mean, right. we'd be here forever, um, and even then, we'd have listeners disagreeing with every single one of our choices. Like, yes, you prefer cinnamon with apples, but actually, what I think you'll find is old spice works much better with apples. <laughs> <laughs> Since the two of you are agreeing, my... it's I, I'm guessing that would be true. Yeah, my my friend, uh, G, I have to give credit to my friend Gene Mealy, who's come up with this idea of the, you know, or at least to me, we've talked about Photoshop and stuff and it, it being like a recipe and, and creating a meal uh, when you're working on your picture. So just giving credit <laughs> where it's due. Well, yeah. since we've got that completely clarified. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Alice. Okay, let me, let me try another one. Um, so you guys talked about vibrance and saturation, and you talked about vibrance being something better, but why? What, what is vibrance, what is saturation, and why choose one over the other? Well, we're into the same sort of thing here, right? So saturation is an adjustment that's been around forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And if you take that saturation slider and start to bump it up, you will very, very quickly have unwanted side effects, like skin that looks like an Oompa Loompa. Like, oh, look, the grass looks perfect. Oh, my God, look at her face. And so people have wanted a way to make pictures more colorful without looking completely fake. And that's the reason that the vibrancy slider, and I think it probably has a synonym in other apps. I'm trying to remember what the synonym is, but it's another one of these things where there are different products will call the same thing by different names. But it makes pictures more colorful in a more intelligent way than just make all the colors more. So you think it's it's uh, got better algorithms, basically? The same concept, but better algorithms than the old school saturation? Yeah, so it will do things like, if something is already saturated, it will leave it alone. Or it will certainly leave it more alone than, it, than a plain old dumb saturate would. So if the sky is already quite blue, it might get a little bit bluer. But it's not going to go to ridiculousness. While at the same time, the grass that was really not all that green becomes green. So it tends to leave photos looking more like you would want. Also, uh, in Photoshop and Lightroom, they've cha- they've tweaked that algorithm in Vibrance so that it uh, leaves skin tones alone mostly. So you might have a picture with a person wearing a you know a nice blue T-shirt and you want to increase the color of that blue, but you don't want their skin tones to increase. Vibrance uh, is built to to protect skin tones. So you would increase vibrance and would increase the color of the blue shirt, but the skin would not increase in saturation. But there are times when you might want to use saturation. For instance, if you were shooting a very colorful scene like a child, you know, maybe a children's playground with lots of colored plastic things and you really want to to make those colors pop uh, you might actually use a little bit of saturation instead of vibrance because you might find you have to dial vibrance all the way up to get the kind of punchy colors you want and you might just put a little bit of saturation in and and that would work so it's again so not like one doing, is better than the other so like if you're doing a chill, uh, tilt shift photography you would want to use uh, saturation because you're actually looking yeah. for that more unreal effect yeah you might yeah. want to yeah yeah, because yeah. the, the side effect of saturation is it makes things look plasticky and fake. So if yeah. you want plasticky and fake, well, then actually it's your friend. Here's your slider yeah. now. Well, okay. Actually, can I just pause for a quick second? Um, there's a big difference between the different apps and how they use these things that are the same name. 
So I just happen to be looking at Clarity. Let's just go back for a second. Clarity both in Lightroom and in Affinity Photo. Mm-hmm. In Affinity Photo's Clarity is a lot different effect than it is in Lightroom. Oh, really? Um, well, I'm seeing more of the halos that you were talking about, uh, Allison, when I push the clarity too far in Affinity Photo. But in Lightroom, I don't see those same halos so as, does as it readily. To, I wonder if uh, changing the blend mode uh, within it makes a difference. Perhaps. I'm just using it straight off the bat with no, so no blending. I, just, so, I, I saw what you're talking about, but then I just changed it to multiply, and I didn't get as uh, much of the halos. In fact... Perhaps. Not yeah. at all. I'm just, I'm just saying the default settings. So whatever everybody's doing under the hood might be slightly different. They're calling it by the same name, but perhaps there is some sort of uh, proprietary reason that they're not uh, exactly the same. Well, I would yeah. imagine, simply put, Adobe don't have it on their website. This is how we do the mathematics for our <laughs> fancy feature. Right. That is I mean, the secret sauce. Yeah. Right. The, the clarity I'm using in, in Affinity Photos, it makes the picture, damages it a lot more, in my opinion, well, than what with, I was seeing in Lightroom. Blend mode, though. So blend, if you just use one feature of the live clarity um, uh, adjustment layer, I agree with you. But if you if you manage it, and like I just changed the blend, blend mode to multiply, and it looks significantly different. So I, I don't want one impression I don't want to give people is that that Affinity Photo sucks and Photoshop's great or vice versa in any of these discussions. It's not a, it's not a, I think they just do things differently. Right. Part but of my not, point is they're doing things differently. But use all of the tool before you condemn it is what I'm saying. So hmm. like I'm saying, it, it just tap the blend mode slider, the thing right on the live clarity filter. And you can change that and you can get uh, get it to do what you want, I think. But I'm not even sure. That it, I mean, I'm not sure, you know, the, the panning is quite the word or whatever. It, it's like Photoshop has been around for forever and costs a house, half a house payment. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, not quite. And, you know, Affinity Photo costs 50 bucks and is brand new. So if it takes one or two more sliders, that's not a particularly harsh criticism. I, I don't think. Yeah. I hope no one would take a negative view of the app that easily because really the value for money there means it's okay to have to push a few more buttons (laughs) there you go there you go well that one was too easy uh the vibrance Uh versus saturation one let's let's do a harder one uh so this one there's like 28 things that all seem to do the same thing to me you've got brightness and contrast Mm -hmm. you've got curves then you've Mm -hmm. got black point versus white point then you can look at the mm-hmm. histogram and drag those five little points back and forth that change the shadows and the brightness and the dark. dark. Yes, that's a levels adjustment effect. Levels adjustment, thank you. So that's four different things that all seem to kind of do the same thing to me. They're related, but they fall into two distinct... I'm going to group them into two different distinct parts for a start. Okay. So brightness and contrast affect the whole image, and so do black point and white point. So that makes them definitely belong together and then you're into curves and levels and those two guys achieve they're two different GUIs two different visualizations of the same type of control where you start to apply different changes depending on whether you're in the dimmest bits of the image or the brightest bits of the image so basically they break the image into regions which we would call shadows highlights midtones if you're only doing three regions or you can chop it into smaller pieces basically the darkest, you know, 25% of the pixels will make them brighter or darker. The brightest 25% of the pixels will make them brighter or darker. The middle 25% will make them brighter or darker. So you're making adjustments based on ranges of brightness of pixel. So that at least splits them into two distinct parts. So which, which half do you want to tackle first? <laughs> uh, why don't we do uh, bright? You said it was brightness and contrast and then black and white point. Mm-hmm. That affects the entire image. Yes. So black and white point is basically setting setting what level of value in your in your original image should you consider to be perfectly black and what level should you consider to be perfectly white. So you're basically creating the zero and the infinity point. And you're saying, you know, so the picture comes in and it's all mushy. You might say, well, actually, there's nothing here darker than a value of 100. So let's call 100 zero recalculate. So that's the black point. And then maybe there's nothing brighter than 200. So you say, let's call 200, 255, and now recalculate. And that's your black and your white point. You're just setting which two parts are the end. Isn't that what we do with so the histogram, to... though, with the levels? 
Okay, so two uh, on a histogram adjustment, very often the two outer sliders are the black and the white point. Right. Okay. So they so basically what you're doing, the way you could visualize it is before you start, you might have a histogram that's all in the middle of the image, and then there's big gaps. And by changing the black point, you're basically saying just ignore all the data up until the start of the hump, and ignore all the data until the end of the hump, and then you've adjusted your black and your white point. Okay. Here's a here's a caveat in this. So, for instance, if you're doing part what you're saying let's mm-hmm. say you've got all your your tones bunched up in the middle mm-hmm. and let's say you're not working with a raw file just for instance because i'm yes. going to say that some of our audience is probably not using raw files and you do this black and white point adjustment and you'll see that the histogram goes from being bunched up in the center to spread out throughout the entire histogram correct yes so that you is reset your happen. black point and white point you take that bunched up little mountain and you spread it out and it becomes a f- sort of a flatter mountain and it spreads out left and right. But what you'll start seeing are these little lines in the histogram. These little blank lines. In yeah, it. what are those? And basically you've told the, the this you know, this is really only gonna happen in a JPEG when you're editing a JPEG, because a RAW has a lot of data in it. So you can use you can mess around with the black and white points in a RAW file pretty well. But if you do it in a JPEG file, or even for that matter, sometimes a a, a TIFF or a our Photoshop file depends on how big the file is, but let's stick with a JPEG. What it's doing is that you're spreading out all the tones. It's the same amount of tones, but you're just spreading them out over a further distance. So there are going to be gaps in in the histogram, which means there are going to be areas in your picture where there is no tone of that of that um, value. You know, there's no pixels of that so, tone. Let's do say. an extreme example, Allison. Let's take a really, really extremely bunched up image. Let's say there's only 50. In the initial histogram, there's only like a difference of 50 between the two edges of the hump. And you spread that out to be 255 wide. Well, then you're going to have whatever was one, whatever was 50 becomes one. Yeah, you're going to have 200 gaps because if you're dealing with a JPEG, there is no more information. There is nothing there for it to use. So it just spreads the values out. So you have we have values at 0, 5, 10, 15, 20. No such thing as 8. No such thing as 7. So your histogram ends up looking like a comb. But does that describe. mean it's lost all value or you just, I mean, why do, why do I need to care about those gaps? It's lost. Well, what happens is it's lost those values. And so depending mm. on what you're going to do with the picture, for instance, if you want to print that picture, or even if you're going to show it on the web, what you'll have uh, sometimes is what's called banding, where there's not a smooth gradation between tones. So, so really gradient be very abrupt. Hmm? You've lost no, it, it didn't yes. lose it, Allison, right? Well, if it was never there to begin with. You're just spreading it out over a larger, a larger you, area. You, you had a nice gradient that was covering 50 pixel values, but there was, it was only in the middle. So you said, okay, well, we'll call the start of it white. Sorry, the start of it black and the end of it white. Right. But there was no more data there. So now it's called a whole bunch of stuff. So it's like it's just become a great big step pyramid. Right, but I, I'm I'm agreeing with you. That's that's okay. what I think has happened. What I'm asking Antonio is, he said that it has lost data when you do that. Well, you've not really. I, I guess the new image that you've created, because you're essentially creating a new picture by spreading out these tones, there there is there are these big gaps. So there's basically nothing there. I think you've just moved um, the gaps, maybe because the gaps were at the low and the no high end. There were no gaps together. You created gaps by spreading them apart. But but there was a yes. gap at the bottom and a gap at the top before, and now you've spread that gap intermingled throughout no, no, your... There was, no, there was no gap. Basically, there's no gap to the left or the right. There's just that you're not meeting the edges. So the the kind of picture that we'd be talking about in this case would be, uh, I think Bart mentioned it before, like a very foggy um, image where all the tones, there's no black or white, and the tones are all gray tones, for instance, right? Because it's a foggy day. Yeah. And if you decided to take... The, you know, the right side and move it to the brightness and the left side and move it to the darkness, you'll end up with a picture that looks like it's from hell, first of all. <laughs> and it, first of all, it won't look like a foggy picture anymore. And it'll have all these um, gaps in the histogram where there, the computer could not fill in the data. And you'll end up with a very bandy-looking image. So the original image was not, there was nothing wrong with it. You were just saying, well, I want to, you know, create a black point and a white point. But then, again, we have to just, I want to make sure to say this. This is with JPEG files mostly because the data has already been baked in. You're already stuck with it. But if you're doing this with a raw file, you won't see that that combing effect so much because there's so much data in the raw file. Right, right. That you, well, you choose to, 
to take those points left and right and, and spread them out. And there's enough information in the file that it will fill in those. There will be a no gaps, I should say. So would your advice then, if, I, if I'm following along, be that if you've got a... Um if you've got a really narrow histogram, be careful with how far you try to stretch that and make sure that you're not creating uh, gaps in the uh, significant gaps in the information. Yeah, well, you'd notice them in the picture, right? So a place where you're going to see them is the sky because whether it's the middle of the day or whether it's sunset or sunrise, the sky is never the same color from bottom to top. So a sky is always a gradient. And if you go too far, if you use more data than your picture has, that will cease to be a nice gradual gradient and become bands, become like stripes. And that will look ick and you will you will dial it back. Okay. Okay. One one problem I still struggle with, and there's nothing you can do about this, is uh that I often don't see stuff that's clearly wrong. I, I remember there was a picture of a duck that I was really, really happy with. I just oh man, that's fantastic. And I said it to Stephen Getz and he said, Yeah, except for the noise. I was like, What noise? And I zoomed up on the <laughs> duck's feathers and it was full of noise. I just didn't see it. So where you're looking at the sky because you have a practiced eye of looking at skies and for this specific reason, you can see what's wrong with it. And I look at it, I go, yeah, sky. (laughs) Well, my advice for that is, well, not just practice, right? When you're editing an image, you're probably obsessed with a particular thing. Mm -hmm. There's like, you know, it might be that you want to make the duck look, you know, nice relative to some weed or something. It's really next to it. There's going to be something that you have your eye on. Mm-hmm. And it's really easy to take your eye off the ball. So my, and I will regularly make a mess of something I wasn't paying attention to. But my advice is you leave the image for 24 hours before you post mm-hmm. it onto social media. And then you come back to it with fresh eyes and you go, oh, my God, what was I thinking? <laughs> Can I also add to that? Mm-hmm. Um, that it's important to, when you're doing adjustments to your picture, to view it at 100% once in a while. Yeah. Because often when you're viewing it in order for it to fit on your screen, your computer and your graphics card is making some uh, interpolation effects that means that you may not be able to see noise or banding when you're looking at the picture on the screen when it's zoomed out to maybe 50% or 33% or whatever it, it does to fill your screen. But when you zoom into 100% and you're looking at a pixel-per-pixel pixel, uh, view of your image, then you'll start to see these artifacts that start to kick in um, if you, for instance, do uh, you know over uh, an over level adjustment or or uh, you know anything else, so it's always helpful to look at what you're working at at 100%. So zoom into 100%, scroll around the picture, and see what kind of damage has been done by some of your uh, <laughs> by some of yeah. your. Your, your, I like, your effects. I like both those pieces of advice. I just discovered something in Affinity Photo yesterday that, that Photoshop probably has, but it's this dopey little panel called Navigator, and it's got a little zoom slider. And I'm like, mm-hmm. so what? I can zoom anywhere. I don't need this little slider. But what I found that was magical in it was that you can save specific zoom sections. So while I'm working on, say, the weeds to get that nice sharpening that I'm looking for that I did with Clarity because now I know everything about sharpening, um, I I could have another zoom that's actually looking at the duck so I can flip back and forth between those two because I can save them in this navigator and go, okay, have I screwed up the duck yet? Yeah, or a sample piece of sky or a sample bit of cloud. Whatever yeah. it is you're worried about, you can jump over and back. That That is actually very nice. I think the, the go away and come back thing is really important. I can't tell you how many times I've published a photo and then the next day go, oh, man, that's too dark. It's almost always too dark when I'm done. Well, your eyes, your eyes keep adjusting. You know, your brain just kind of goes, well, that's wrong, so I will correct it. Yeah. But, of course, the other person's brain hasn't been corrected and your brain won't have been corrected when you come back to it tomorrow. And so you can very easily end up with the white balance being completely like stupidly yellow, but your brain has been dialing it back and dialing it back and it looks fine to you now and tomorrow it won't look fine. It's often relative to whatever you were looking at too. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that covers just a black and white point. So then the other, the other ones we have (laughs) then is, right. So brightness, brightness is easy, Sorry. Was that the same as brightness and contrast or no? No, no. So there is. So that's a different slider. So if you look at them, you're going to have a slider called black point, a slider called white point, and usually above that, a slider called contrast, and above that, a slider called brightness. Yeah. The average order. So brightness is really easy. So you see your histogram, 
If you slide the brightness to the right, the histogram will move to the right. If you slide the brightness to the left, the histogram will move to the left. Mm -hmm. So that, that's all it does. It just shifts what you have left ah. up or down, brighter or darker, brighter or darker. Okay. So that is easy. Now, contrast is doing math. So what contrast is doing is it's going through every pixel and saying, I am going to brighten or darken you depending on how bright or dark you already are. If you're already dark, I will darken you. If you're already bright, I will brighten you. And if you're somewhere in the middle, I'll leave you mostly alone. So that's what contrast does. Okay. Well, and it does that on the whole image. I just remembered just go, okay. what I forgot is exposure is also in there. Exposure is a synonym for brightness. Oh, but they're two different sliders. Are they? Oh, yeah. Depends on. Yeah. Yep. On everything I've ever used, uh, definitely in, in photos and in uh, Photoshop Elements, when I've used that, those are different. And Antonio I almost helped. always hate brightness, and I almost always like using exposure. Antonio? Antonio? I, I've never used, I, I, I never use brightness. Yeah, neither do uh, I. I'm working on something, I'm, I'm using exposure. Okay. Um, I think exposure is mildly more clever. So, like, if you take the same picture with a different exposure setting on your camera, it's not just moving the histogram stupidly like brightness does. The effect is a little bit different, and so that slider simulates a bit more realistically. So it's more like a sort of a slight undo button. It's like, oh, sugar, I was a stop and a half underexposed. No, just that back up a bit. Okay. Okay. So brightness just seems to be increasing all the values by some amount. Yeah. Yeah, it's just okay. a very dumb shift the whole histogram left to right, make everything brighter by 10 or darker by 10 or brighter by 50 or darker by 50. Very simplistic. Before and we hence go, very ugly. Before we go An too exposure, far... Oh, go ahead. So I was going to say, I'm, as I'm playing an Affinity Photo, uh, exposure tends to leave the darker shades alone. So, for instance, anything that's already black tends to stay black. So it's, okay. it's basically stretching... It looks like it's stretching the histogram out to the right. Rather than sliding it all over, which is what brightness seems to be doing, it's like it's like the blacks and the darks, the darker, darker shadows are pinned to the left, and then you're just sort of pulling it like sort of an elastic band, pulling out the uh, the midtones and uh, some of the dark tones, the midtones, and the highlights is pulling them out more to the right. Uh, I like which that. again is. Which I, have is this, more I have this fellow with a black hat on right now, and I'm I'm playing around with the exposure in Affinity Photo, and no matter how far I pull over the exposure to the right, the black hat stays black, so it's it's pinned that those dark tones. Oh, I like it. Which is a bit like the real world, right? Because something if something is a shadow, if you underexpose by a star, if you expose by a star brighter, it's not going to suddenly become gray. It's probably still a shadow. Yeah. Yeah, that helps. By the way, I want to say something else nice about the previous show. Uh, Antonio, you talked about um, exposure compensation built into a camera. I never would have known what I was looking at. In Affinity Photo, I found a preference for whether or not to apply the um, the exposure compensation that it pulls out of the EXIF data. And I never would have known what that was if I hadn't listened to Let's Talk Photography. Oh. <laughs> oh his head's going to get all oh, swollen up, Bart. I mean... It's already all swollen. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we've now covered all of the ones that do the whole picture. Right. So now we have our friends, the levels and the um, histograms. Curves. The uh, curves. Yeah, yeah curves. so levels and curves. And levels and curves achieve the same thing. They just do it in a different UI. So it's a different way of allowing you to achieve the same thing. So... Some people's brains are curvy and some people's brains are levelly. So <laughs> a levels adjustment picks four spots or four or five or three, depending on the exact adjustment. It varies a bit, but it picks, it divides the number of, you know, the, bus, the possible range of brightness from black to white into regions and puts them next to each other and gives you a slider for each region and lets you adjust each one individually. So maybe you want the shadows up and the highlights down or the shadows up, the midtones left completely alone and the highlights up, whatever, those kind of things. And it has picked the points and you can slide away. Now, some levels adjustments let you also, they give you two sliders, one top and one bottom. And one lets you change which part of the spectrum you're in. So actually, I know you meant, I know you think 
that the mid-tones start at, say, 50, but I want to slide it over so the mid-tones start at 40, just picking numbers at the top of my hat. Mm. So when you move one, you're changing what counts as the mid-tone, and the other one says make it brighter or make it darker. So the aperture one is particularly confusing because it lets you do that on each of the five adjustment points. Okay. And then a curves adjustment is just the same idea. So you have a diagonal line which represents don't do anything. So it's a line that runs diagonally open to the right and if you leave it alone so if that is a perfectly straight 45 degree line that means do not edit this photo in any way shape or form and then you click your mouse onto a part of that line and then you move it up or down and so that line say the bits on that line to the left represent the darkest pixels and the bits on that line to the right represent the brightest pixels so if you want the highlights you pick a point somewhere near the right and then you move it up to make the highlights brighter or down to make the highlights darker and you might click again in the shadows, which is somewhere near to the right, and you move up to make the shadows brighter and down to make the shadows darker. And then you can click somewhere else to make the midtones. So you can click anywhere. So it's a more analog version of the same thing. Okay. Well, that helps if that is essentially the same thing, but and, and even more anal level of control, right? You don't just get five points. You can put 150 in there if you of the, that mode. Exactly. And you can put them sort of anywhere. So it's a little bit more, it's more analogy because you can nudge left or right to slightly change what you mean by highlight and up or down a little bit. So it, it is a slightly more, I, I find it a more natural way of interacting with the same effective controls. Yeah, I'm starting to like it. I'm starting to, uh, I'm starting to use it more and more. So I'm, I'm getting into it. <laughs> what, what's your view, Antonio? Are you, are you a levels person or a curves person? Um, I'm... More often than not, a levels person, because I'm not tweaking my pictures often that much, that I need to get the fine detail of, uh, of curves. But one of the things I'd, I'd like to say is I wish that uh, the, the levels version in, um, sorry, the curves in Aperture was more mm -hmm. like a levels adjustment. It was designed like a levels adjustment. You know, it had a histogram. Um, and I kind of enjoyed that. It was kind of like a hybrid between curves and levels and Aperture's version was just really, really nice. Uh, I think yeah, had a I... lot more fine tuning on that. Um, and, uh, I, I kind of wish that would come back in some other application. Um, because I, I get kind of frustrated with levels. Some, I mean, sorry, I get frustrated with curves sometimes because if you tweak it, you know, you could, it's easy to like move your mouse a little too far and it, and the, the curves goes wacky and you have yeah. to undo and go back. And so there's so many about degrees of freedom. Yeah. I mean, if you could make the curves about the size of the screen so you could have that minute <laughs> adjustments, I'd be really happy with that because then you Aperture... could really go in. Aperture had this really great sort of thing. If you clicked on a point in your curves, the arrow, the cursor keys on your keyboard nudged gently. Yeah. And yeah. I wish every, I don't know why everyone doesn't do that, but they don't all do that. Yeah. Hmm. Bert, I so, think. I mean, I know. Go ahead. I was just going to say, Bart, you're better at doing these very slight adjustments. Uh, Antonio, I remember one time I wanted help with a photo, which I think in the end was unsalvageable, but it was fun learning from Bart. He had me do a Skype session to him where he would tell me what to do. And he said, okay, move that slider just a smidge. And I moved it like 10 units. And he was like, <laughs> ah! And he lost his mind. I said, you said just a little bit. It was 100 to yeah. work with there. And he meant like one and a half or something. <laughs> well, three or four, you know. Oh, sure. But uh, I mean, the but, one thing I used curves for a lot in Photoshop, which is when I'm getting more adjusting to a picture, is, is really helpful to get rid of color casts because hmm. you can go into the different color channels. So if I needed to remove some green in the picture, because maybe I shot under fluorescent lights and I didn't uh, color correct, and let's let's assume that I'm not using a raw file, that I could go into curves and I can adjust the red channel a little bit to get rid of some of that green. It's a very good way of, of getting rid of color casts. Um, Hang on, why so, wouldn't you adjust the green to get rid of the green? No, because you have to you have to choose the opposite color. So I would choose. I could do that, but I choose to add red into the picture oh. and subtract green. I guess you could do that. You could subtract green, but I tend to add red to compensate. Again, it depends on the picture. Okay, so you're warming it up to make up with the fact that it was too cool instead of cooling it down to make up with the fact that I'm redding it up to get rid of the green. Yeah, I wouldn't call green a cool picture, but. Eh. But yes, essentially that way. But it's great for, for doing, especially if you want to get rid of color casts, perhaps uh, this is where it gets tricky. If you have color casts in shadow areas, um, 
then you a curves adjustment is great because let's say you have green in a shadow, maybe someone's standing near a green wall mm. and, and they're getting some ambient green reflection in the shadows with curves. You can go into the green or red channel and just tweak the shadows to help get rid of the color in those shadows by keeping and keeping the rest of the color of the picture um, from changing to red or green. So it's a, it's a nice way to, tackle certain parts of the pictures when you have to get rid of color casts. Hmm. Yeah, that's quite it, yeah. Well, it's quite common actually to have a blue cast in shadows particularly. Especially if you're doing HDR work or something where you're, yeah. you're at dusk time. Not and, always good with people though. No, no, that's true. No. <laughs> so <laughs> I always think of that when you see the the picker that says skin tone. Who's skin tone? Mm. <laughs> yeah, that that's a bit racist, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah. Not to put too fine a point on it. Right, right. Well, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what they pick. I have no idea. Well, I think I've got a much better answer or understanding of these than I did before. Um, I still think you guys are nuts when it comes to definition sharpening. <laughs> Let me try one more. Um, so when I go to create a mask, uh, mm-hmm. the selection brush can have a hardness. And that seems to mm-hmm. control how fuzzy the edge is. But after you yes. create a mask, you can feather those edges. Is there a reason why we have both of those tools? And is there a difference between when, when we should apply them? Well, they're both useful, right? So feathering the edge just means make everything a little bit fuzzy around the edges. Whereas feathering in particular, so you, you might make five or six brushstrokes and you might make some of them very, very hard and some of them very soft. And then at the very end, you apply the effect and there's a halo. Well, let's just feather the edge a bit and that should bleed, you know, so either, yeah, so feather the edge a bit to make it less sharp of a go from where my adjustment starts to where my adjustment finishes. And you can probably make the edge look better by just feathering it a bit. But how is that Not different sure than using a hard, uh, the hardness on the brush? Well, because you then have to go and rebrush, which would be hard. Okay. So let's say you have it almost right. So you're brushed right and you have the shape right, but it just the transition isn't nice. Rather than rebrushing, just feather the edges. Okay. Would now you... in Aperture, you had a great feature where you could actually paint with a feather. So you could actually just soften the bits that were a problem and leave all the rest alone. Oh. But I haven't seen that anywhere else. Oh, okay. Oh. Would you agree with that answer, Antonio? It's more fun when you guys uh, argue, uh... by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I would. I'm trying to think of it. I think uh, a brush... Um, reacts differently than a than a feathered when you're feathering. I think a brush has a, like a certain amount of information that's towards the center of the brush, and then a certain amount that's towards the edges. And I think feathering is a different way to soften the edges, different than a than a soft edge brush. Uh, I might be just grasping here because I don't know the the me- mechanics behind the two. This might be one of those things where. You know, sometimes when I'm working on Photoshop or if I'm making a recipe, I'm just throwing spices in and until it tastes good. <laughs> so like if a tool's working for me, you know, and it works and it works and I, and I have to tweak it, I keep going until it looks good and, and I go with it. Sometimes I don't really know the underlying um, workings yeah. of it. And that's kind of the artist in me, like the, was the left brain part of me. No, right brain. Yeah, the right brain. The right brain part of me. I'm just, you know, hey, oh, hey, that looks good. I'm done. See, How'd I don't you have do a right brain. No idea. No idea. I only have a left brain, so that's where I get. I've, I'm handicapped in that way. <laughs> well, my general approach. Bit of both. Sorry, Antonio. No, I was going to say it's just you know, the the two come hand in hand, but uh, uh, sometimes, you know, it it to me it's just a, an act of creation sometimes, and. You know, sometimes I'm not able to reduplicate the things I've done, which is, you know, unfortunate for me sometimes because, like, how did I do that effect? I don't know. <laughs> I can't go back in time and look at it. I can't look at the, you know, unless I did a screen capture of it or something, but, which I've done sometimes, actually. It's I've done a screencast of what I was doing to make sure I can duplicate it again, so. <laughs> Very good. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think that's pretty close to the major questions that I've been struggling with well, you, lately. You have one more there oh, in the yeah, show yeah. notes. Okay, so, yeah, that's right. There's one that I just don't know anything about. I, there's okay. a control called split toning. What the heck is that? 
Okay, before we talk about split toning, let's talk about just a simpler one like a sepia tone. Okay. So a sepia tone takes your takes your whole image, makes it black and white, and then throws in a color. So in the case of sepia, a sort of a yellowy color, which is, I believe it comes from the ink from a cuttlefish. I believe that's where sepia comes from. <laughs> uh, so it's a particular shade, and it came out of a photographic process that was popular 100-ish years ago. Split toning is doing that twice. So you say the shadows I will make black and white and I will give them this color and the highlights I will make black and white and I will give them that color. And that's what split toning is. So you're making the whole image black and white. Not... Yeah, so the whole image so is black and white and then the shadows white, yeah. get filled in with one color and the highlights with another color. So you could have red and green? Yeah, so a sepia tone and a bluey oh tone. My God, yes. Red yeah. and green, does that, does that work well, Antonio? It's Christmas, maybe, or if you have those three D oh. glasses. I don't know. It sounds hideous. I'm, I'm imagining a picture of red and green, and like I'm just cringing at it. But you might use um, a different shade of the same color uh, in both the shadows and highlights. You know, maybe not something as garish as red and green, um, but you might use a darker brown and a lighter brown, uh, and see what happens. It might be a little bit better than a than a regular sepia image, or a blue. You know, one shade of blue. And a lighter shade of blue and a darker shade of blue. I've so done it get... with a sort of a sepia tone in the highlights and a very, very subtle slate, a very, very almost black slate gray for the shadows. And that can work yeah. nicely. Yeah. I think the key to these are subtle, subtle, you know, tweaks of tones and not going overboard um, <laughs> because they can look really, they can look really bad. I guess the idea, there is a, an analog to it. I just can't remember what it is. I mean, you didn't see a lot of real photographic prints that were split tone, but, uh, you sometimes would get it when you would do some cross-processing uh, of films. You'd get different tonal colors in the uh, in the shadows and in the highlights. Um, so it might be duplicating that. But uh, it's it's really nice for monochromatic images. I think. Huh. Uh, I and you end up printing them, print them in color, obviously, so that you have some sort of color. But uh, <laughs> the last time I sent a nice little sepia to to a printer, I got a phone call going. Was this meant to be black and white, or should it be a little bit yellow? It's supposed to be a little bit yellow. Print it yellow, please. You say, uh, maybe I should send this to somebody else, would be the answer. Well, the, well hang on. I, I, that was my first reaction, because I, I was in work, and I didn't want to be disturbed. And then my second reaction was, at least he phoned. <laughs> uh, yeah. Definitely, definitely. My uh, my daughter just had a piece of um, very ornate cross-stitch that she finished. Uh, she had it framed. And when she washed the fabric, it had been 10 years she'd been working on this thing. When she washed it, the colors leached into the unstitched area around the pattern. And so when she designed the the mask around it, she had it go right up to the edge. And uh, the woman that was framing it called and said, uh, did you really mean to show the area where the colors bled? <laughs> she said, no, I did not. And I said, yeah, I didn't think that's what you meant. We'll recut it because who had ever cut it? Gone, well, no, you always leave a little border of fabric around it. <laughs> At least they called. Yeah, exactly. You know, to go back to what you were saying at the beginning, Allison, about there's just being so many choices and where do you start? Uh, you know, it's like having that blank canvas and having no idea what what to do. And so it's always good to start off with some sort of plan if you're looking at a picture. And trying to figure out the, the few tools you need because someone once said that you don't need to learn – and I'm using Photoshop as an example, but this I think applies to all these other programs. That you don't need to, to learn 100% of the program. You just need to be really good at maybe like a 25% of the program. Like those, that little bit of stuff that you need to do, work on it really, really well. Because it can be very overwhelming to, to sit there and like, I don't know what to do. You know, I don't know what the sliders are. It's just so much to learn. I mean, I, it, there's sort of a hierarchy of importance, right? So it, 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 the most important one to master is the control of exposure. So that's your, your black points, your white, your white points, your exposure, your contrast, your definition, slash whatever we're calling it this week. That kind of stuff, if, like that's really important. That makes a difference between, ugh, and okay, that's a perfectly good image. Probably second in line is mastering color adjustments. So white balance. And then saturation and vibrance to a lesser degree. And then maybe if you have a really troublesome picture, it might be time to start equating yourself with the concept of adjusting each color independently by using levels or curves. But, you know, they're, they're, so once you have mastered the exposure and the color, you, you've gone from snapshot to decent photo quite quickly. And then all the rest is icing on the cake. Yeah. And you'll discover that icing 
as and when you find a photograph that you just say to yourself, mm, it's almost right, but I need a bit more X or a bit less Y or whatever. And then you go to the Googles or whatever, and then you learn that technique, and then you can add that one into your tool belt. But some of the tools you're going to reach for every single day, and some tools like split toning, you're going to reach for once every year or two. Yeah, that, that also, makes sense. Yeah, I also would like to sort of add that there's the time when you have the picture that no matter what you can do, there's nothing that can save it. It's like <laughs> you giving up. No, really. I mean, I've I've sometimes struggled with a shot for a long time, and I haven't really stepped back to look at it and say, you know what? It's not a good picture. It's not worth spending it's the energy on. such a sad point, on. though, isn't it? Where you're like, this was almost a really great photo. It it Well, yes and no. I mean, I've gotten sort of used to it <laughs> over the years. I mean, I've been doing this so long. Um, you know, to date myself. Yes, I've been doing it long, so I've I've lived through a lot of disappointment. And I just sort of shrug my shoulders and like, okay, well, there'll be another opportunity to get this shot or to do something similar. Um, but you know, no matter sometimes it's no matter what, you can't save an image or a, you know, in, in post production. It's like you have to learn to know when to stop because and you also have to know when to stop when you're working on a picture because you can always oh you can go overboard. So you mm. just need to find that fine line between the, you know, you want to look at a picture and you want to say, wow, that looks like a great shot. Not like, oh, wow, you did some really good Photoshop work on that. <laughs> you don't, you don't, you don't, you want the effects to be in the background that serve the, the purpose of the picture. You don't want to bring attention to the picture by way of its adjustments. So you can always tell a shot that's been over sharpened. Because you can see halos on it, or a shot that's been over clarified, because you can see the details that ought not to be there, that you know your eye should not be drawn to. So, really, is to to look at the picture and say what's gonna what's gonna make it work, and what's not what's not gonna make it work. Um, but just like anything, let it let it blend in the background. Once you start seeing the effects too much, unless that's part of the, your choice, maybe that's but, where you use uh, Bart's theory of walk away for twenty four hours and come back. Yeah, or and, walk away for a month. I mean, oh, not everything no has way. to. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to throw yes two, way. <laughs> I was going to throw two little things into the mix with this topic. So the, the the first thing is, thank goodness we have non-destructive editors, because it means that when you come back the second day and you realize that okay, it needed some more color, but that wasn't some. Well, you can just nudge it back a little because the chances are you made the right edits. You probably just made a little bit too much of the right edit. So you just back them all off a little bit and the chances are you'll have a nice picture afterwards. And then the other thing is don't be afraid to use the reject button. It won't actually delete the photograph. It'll just hide it from you. And then six months from now when you need some disk space, you can just go delete rejected and you'll be fine. <laughs> there you go. Okay, um, well, we've reached the end of your list, Alison. So, firstly, thank you very much for sending us feedback. And secondly, thank you very much for agreeing to come on and uh, question us in person, because it was a very fun show. I had a great time. The, the only downside is now I don't have a show to listen to. I hate that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Well, look. We'll just wait a month. Just store it away for a month, and <laughs> it'll be fresh. There you go. Well, do you want to tell the listeners who don't yet know who you are, where you are, and what you do? Yeah, I do uh, two shows. Bart mentioned one of them, uh, the NoSilicast Mac podcast. It's a tech podcast, like he said, with an ever so slight Macintosh bias. That is hosted over at podfeet.com. And also at podfeet.com, you can find Chit Chat Across the Pond. Every other week, it is Bart doing something interesting. Lately, we've been on a, a binge here where he's teaching me to use, uh, to learn JavaScript programming, other kinds of programming as well. And uh, that's a lot of fun. That's a pretty uh, propeller beanie uh, half of the show. The other half is much lighter. I call it Chit Chat Across the Pond Light, where I just in, in, uh, interview people I find interesting, like uh, Dr. Marianne Gary was on recently talking about memory. And, uh, and we have a lot of fun in that show. It's, it's a little, uh, little lighter fare. Yeah, but the nice thing actually is that you, the range of guests you have for that chit chat show is very broad, and which makes it very fun because you never know what it's going to be from one week to the next. I've even had Antonio on there a couple times. Yeah. So you never know what you're going to get. Indeed. Speaking of Antonio, Antonio, do you want to let people know where they can listen to more of your great work? Yeah, you can uh, find me as part of the Switch to Manual team on our podcast, Street Shots. So switchtomanual.com. Slash podcast, Street Shots podcast. Also, you can find me lurking a lot on Twitter at AM Rosario and uh, also the Switch to Manual Twitter at Switch the number two manual. So that's Switch to Manual. 
Also, like to invite everybody to look at my Instagram feed at, at AM Rosario as well. Just look for me at AM Rosario everywhere. <laughs> I'm, I'm AM Rosario everywhere. And I've talked myself onto Allison's show a couple times. So I like, you know, hey, it's time to have me on. She's like, okay, great. There he is <laughs> so again. I've, I've enjoyed that so much, actually. Good. So, Good. Excellent. Very much. And okay. can I be on again? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, uh, the website for this show is let's-talk.ie. If you wander over there, you'll find three large blue buttons under a heading, support the show. Please consider supporting the show. Um, I do this entirely for fun. So the only in- the only income stream for the show is you guys, the listeners. And there are, unfortunately, some bills for the show. So I'm trying to get to a situation where the money coming in and the bills going out are equal to each other. That's all I want. I don't want them to, I don't want, I don't want actual income. I just would like one to fill the hole made by the other. And we're getting close, which is nice, satisfying that we're getting close, but we're not quite there yet. So first off, you can support the show on Patreon. The, the, the Patreon supporters are amazing people because basically you pledge a small amount of money for every show that comes out. There'll be two a month, one, one for photography, one for Apple. Uh, so basically, if you want to give a dollar, you pledge 50 cents and it'll work out at a dollar. You get the idea. And the great thing with the Patreon stuff is I know they're coming in every month, so I can actually plan ahead and, you know, I can arrange things because I know that this Patreon support is coming in. So it makes such a difference to me to have that consistency. Uh, There's also a PayPal button, and that is, you know, I mean, I love it when people push that button. I don't want to say anything about, you know, people who support that way very much appreciate it, and thank you. And then finally, there's a Zazzle store where you can buy yourself some T-shirts and things with the logo on it. And therefore, you, I get a small percentage back from Zazzle. You get some cool stuff. And you get to be a walking billboard for the show. So it's kind of <laughs> a win-win situation. And then finally, you don't have to spend a cent. Tell your friends. Tweet about the show. Go to iTunes. Leave us a nice review. All of that stuff helps and it's all appreciated. So thank you to everyone who has supported the show. And if you haven't, please do consider doing so. I've been your host, Bart Bouchotts. You can find me at bartb.ie. And until next time, happy snapping. You're listening to another great podcast in the Stoplight Network. Excuse me, do you consider yourself to be a geeky lady? Absolutely. I mean, I have an iPad. I have this is my third iPhone. Uh, I'm, I use Pinterest. I, I'm on Facebook. I love my computer. I, I can't live without my Photoshop. Okay, Absolutely. okay. I get it. You're a pretty geeky lady. What about you? Would you consider yourself a geeky lady? Absolutely. I have Apple TV. I have my iPad. I have my iPhone 5. <laughs> I have an iPod. I have I have Photoshop. I've got about 70 or 80 apps. Yes, absolutely. Okay. I'm a geeky okay, okay. lady. Thank you. I get it. I get it. Well, what about you? Are you? Do you consider yourself a geeky lady? Hell no, but that's why I listen to three geeky ladies. <laughs>